0: The biggest surprise is that AI used to be narrow. And when you went from one application to the other, you had to redo it all from scratch. What really surprised us is the emergence of general tools, right? So GPT is general. You can talk to it about anything. It's almost the love child of a search engine like Google, which you can talk to about anything, with the somewhat limited, but very real intelligence of AI systems.
1: Hello and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We are coming to you from GeekWire in Seattle where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in business, technology, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and every week on this show, we talk about some of the most interesting stories and trends in the news. Later on, we're going to be talking with one of the leaders in the field of AI, one of the longtime leaders, Oren Etzioni, about the year that we've just been through and what's coming up next. But first, John, I wanted to pull you into the office here on the Friday before the long holiday weekend, the New Year's weekend, because we had some big AI news this past week. The New York Times company sued... Microsoft and OpenAI for copyright infringement over their use of New York Times articles and content in the training of various artificial intelligence models, not the least of them allegedly, various forms of GPT by OpenAI and then by incorporation, Bing Chat and everything that Microsoft has done. This is a fascinating case to me on multiple levels. It certainly crosses our interests. We both read the complaint, portions of the complaint, the coverage. I'd be really curious, just to start us off, John, are there any big-picture thoughts that you have on the implications or the details of the New York Times lawsuit against Microsoft and OpenAI? I think Microsoft is in a bit of trouble here. I think they push
2: these AI models out too quickly. With too many hallucinations or misinformation, as the New York Times calls it, and they're paying the price. And I think it's telling that Microsoft hasn't responded publicly, at least as far as I know, at the time of this recording. Reading through the suit, reading the press coverage, the New York Times has some pretty strong arguments here. I mean, there are ver- it's verbatim texts of New York Times stories that are being taken by these large language models and reproduced outside of the domain. It's like if you went and took a Mazda or a Tesla or a Oldsmobile or a Jeep off the lot and just started driving it as your own, right? I mean, it's like they're just taking it and repurposing it. For their own, I mean, it's it's pretty blatant.
1: Reading through the suit, there are multiple aspects where the New York Times feels that its copyright has been violated. First, in the training of these AI models, especially in older versions of GPT, it was transparent that OpenAI was using New York Times content as kind of a canonical text in many ways, and largely because You could rely on its accuracy, (laughs) which is very important when you're sucking up the entire internet to have some kind of ground truth that you can bake into these models so that in turn, they're not hallucinating. So there's that one thing where that's where the Times is saying, hey, if you want access to our content on a commercial basis, like we have licenses for this. There are people who pay many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars a year to do what you're doing with our content. There's also then the reproduction of the New York Times articles in response to specific queries, which does two things. One, it proves they are still using the New York Times content to inform and train these different large language models. But two, it just, as you're pointing out, clearly just violates copyright law. I mean, I don't know how you can get around that. The argument that OpenAI makes is that it's transformative. They're taking this content and doing something else with it. but. But Some not really. I mean, no. they're, they're they're taking it almost verbatim, exactly, and repurposing it for their own use. Now, the one thing is, it takes really specific prompts, really specific queries to get ChatGPT, for example, to fully reproduce large chunks of a New York Times article. But it can be done. And then you ask yourself, well, even when it's not being explicitly done, is it being done? Like have you really compared to the text of a response that it might give to your question about the Supreme Court, there would likely be scenarios where there was verbatim text that you just didn't even notice. It does seem like blatant stealing. I mean, we, we're in the media business.
2: We produce journalistic content. We've had many instances over the years where entities have wanted to reproduce or use either our videos, podcasts, written content, what have you. And the typical path for that is that people contact us and they say, what is the fee to license this video or this article? And it's a business discussion, right? And I don't understand why Microsoft wouldn't take the same path here to access not just one piece of content from the New York Times, but it appears the entire archive of New York Times content. It seems
1: even more blatant in this case. I could see the argument on the other side being, from a purely technical standpoint, hey, this stuff is out there on the internet. Anybody could read it. You, as an individual, might go and read the archive of New York Times articles and be all that much richer for it. Your knowledge would be enhanced and informed. And that's what the New York Times is there for. So what difference is it that in this case, it just doesn't happen to be a human who's doing the consumption. It's a technological platform that's doing the consumption. Now, I think that's that's a flawed argument, but I could see that being part of it. Like, hey, it's out there. Why can't we use it? Well, it's out there behind a paywall. That's true. And so other people have to pay
2: for it. Are I'm they sure, have one subscription? Yeah, I'm sure. ChatGPT <laughs> has one subscription in the New York Times, and they get access to the entire archive. ChatGPT, GPT, yeah. from what I hear, is real big on Wordle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like, so they're paying, like, you know, whatever the subscription is for the New York Times, $180 a year right. to license and use all of the content. I don't think you can take – it's one thing to take the content and consume it, and it's in your brain. Or it's in your AI system, but then to
1: push it back out, I think that's where there are problems. So, Microsoft, as you said, has not commented on this publicly yet. OpenAI put out a statement saying, quote, we respect the rights of content creators and owners and are committed to working with them to ensure they benefit from AI technology and new revenue models. Our ongoing conversations with The New York Times have been productive and moving forward constructively, so we're surprised and disappointed with this development. We're hopeful that we'll find a mutually beneficial way to work together, as we are doing with many other publishers. Here's my thought on this whole thing. I actually think even if the New York Times was on a path to reach a negotiated agreement with Microsoft and OpenAI, it is far more constructive, productive, and significant for the tech industry and for media to have this precedent be set by a judge, by a court, by a jury, somebody that could establish guidelines somehow now maybe the court system isn't the right place to do that maybe it would be better if this prompted legislation to create or why couldn't the new york times and microsoft just come to a business agreement right but then my issue is that that doesn't serve as a model necessarily at least in a transparent way or an enforceable precedent that others could then follow That's my issue. And so in in that way, I think this lawsuit is a good thing for the industry. right? And you have
2: seen OpenAI do deals with other media companies. The Associated Press is one example. Um, And so what you're saying is those one-off deals are actually kind of bad for the industry.
1: Uh, Not as good as having having some in open court that creates a precedent for everybody else. So I think that's good in this case that to the point of OpenAI's statement, they were going on these negotiations and – apparently starting to get somewhere close to a constructive resolution, but the New York Times filed suit. I think it's a good thing that they did for for everybody else. And, and I think ultimately, it's probably a good thing for Microsoft and OpenAI, counterintuitively, because even in the short term, they may have to give something up to the New York Times. At least they'll be operating in an environment that's known, like known landscape. And frankly, that's the argument that Microsoft makes all the time in terms of things like online privacy and AI facial recognition, they would argue now as sort of the mature company in the tech industry, that they'd rather have rules, regulations, Guardrails that they know about, even if they're somewhat detrimental in the short run, it's better for their business to have that certainty. You also wrote about this
2: uh, in a column on GeekWire where you talked about kind of the historical components of what Microsoft has argued over the years in terms of how they want to protect – no, their own proprietary software, right? And this, they wouldn't allow other entities to take their source code and use it to build maybe another operating system right. or another office suite. Or it, it's been their argument
1: from almost day one. Bill Gates, in his open letter to hobbyists, reprinted in I think it was the Altair magazine back in 1976 made this point. You know, he essentially said, you know, who can afford to do professional work for nothing? All of you hobbyists out there who are stealing our software need to pay up. And here you have, almost five decades later, the company going into this new era and building its business on the value that somebody else created in terms of an authoritative database of fact-checked knowledge that needs to inform these LLMs. And Microsoft is just using it essentially for free via OpenAI. Now, of course, Microsoft is investing billions in OpenAI, so it's not free to Microsoft, but they're not compensating the New York Times. And I think, especially if you look at how Microsoft has positioned itself against open source software over the years and going after different technology companies back in the day that Microsoft felt was infringing on its IP rights, it is a very ironic twist here. I'm thinking there's going to be a big check written. <laughs> to the New York Times. <laughs>
2: yeah, Thanks. I think the suit is is very damning with a lot of evidence to back up their points. And I just don't see how Microsoft can claim that it's fair use to ingest all of this content and then create a new product with it. Now, I've been thinking about like, you know, in the music industry, you know, with yeah. hip hop and sampling and like. There there was a system that – I mean this – we've been here before to a degree where there's, there was a system put in place to put some guardrails around that. It took a lot of time. There was pain getting to there. But uh, – so hopefully it does get resolved because as the New York Times writes, it's not easy running a media business. It's not easy funding journalists who are in Israel and Ukraine and – All over the place. I mean, it's an expensive endeavor. And to just have an entity take and ingest that
1: content for free and then use it for their own purpose just seems wrong. You shared with me an article that somebody else passed along to you. It's an opinion commentary in The Wall Street Journal by Francesco Marconi, who's a longtime technology executive who's been involved in media businesses. Just a fantastic piece. The headline is, AI and Journalism Need Each Other. And it really gets to the heart of the matter that AI is transforming journalism and the way that it's produced and delivered at the same time that it's relying on journalism. And this was one of the key points. It was, quote, we must acknowledge the disparities. Many news entities, repositories of invaluable data grapple with cash limitations. AI firms with ample financial resources face a dearth of high-caliber data. And the bottom line here is he's suggesting a market-driven remedy, a collaboration in which both sectors take advantage of their respective strengths. It seems like there ultimately is a win-win, to use the cliched phrase, where the AI companies get what they need in terms of reliable information, but the media companies get compensated fairly for it, especially something like the newspaper of record here that's really providing a source of truth to the training of these LLMs. Yeah, but where does it stop? I mean, there these yeah. the New York Times is just
2: one entity. And as you know, there are massive amounts of people creating content at this point. And so uh, do you think Microsoft and OpenAI are going to go down the path of compensating every single content creator uh, that has put anything out into the digital universe
1: at, at any given time? Obviously, it starts to stretch credulity, as they would say. But I think at some point, hey, even if you're not getting compensated financially, they're providing tools and working in more of a collaborative spirit with media organizations to help them produce and deliver the news in this new age of AI. Yeah, but that's hard.
2: All these, all these tech companies are yeah. built around doing things efficiently. I mean, why didn't Meta back in the day, put in real serious content moderation to limit the types of content that was flowing through their system. You know why? Because then they became essentially a media company right. and a journalistic entity that had to curate the stuff. And that's super hard to do and really time-consuming and expensive.
1: Right. And they don't want to do that. And it opens them up to legal liability that they wouldn't face under current communications law. So yeah, that that's that's a struggle. I, I don't know. Is there some kind of commission model where every time some query to chat GPT turns up information from, I don't know, GeekWire, <laughs> we get some sort of slice of that revenue based on the algorithm's determination of the you know, fractions of the pennies that we deserve? I don't know. Well, that's like ASCAP, right? Yes. and uh, Which is recording essentially artists. for
2: recording artists, every time a piece of their music is played, they get some sort of
1: compensation. That's pretty complicated.
2: Very complicated. It would probably hold back the pace of AI innovation. Which maybe that's not a bad thing.
1: Maybe not.
2: I feel as if Microsoft and OpenAI got ahead of themselves here. And look at look at how unreliable it is based on some of the hallucinations. I mean, if you're looking through some of the examples provided by the New York Times, there was one I remember from the suit where essentially they were citing a New York Times story about some sort of health benefits tied to a specific diet. And there were like eight or 10 things in the New York Times article that said, oh, these are the things you can eat that are beneficial to you. And the AI system just made up like other four or examples. five other things that were not good for you to eat, but we're still citing the New York Times as their source for, for the information. The models aren't good enough, and they got ahead of themselves. And Yeah, now to kind of go back and retrofit some sort of media licensing commission system on top of this, it's harder to do. They needed to do that in advance when they were signing the deals to bring the content
1: into their system. At the same time, I personally am finding so much value in specific AI assistive tools. There has to be some way for the tech companies that are benefiting from this source of truth to turn around and provide value back to it in the abstract. And so- There has to be. I'm just, it is a very, com. it yes. seems
2: like a very complex thing to try to yeah. retrofit <laughs> into the system now. But I think they're going to have to do that, or that's going to be one of the things they're going to have to start thinking about. But you're right. I think it will slow down the pace of innovation. But a lot of people have been calling for that yep. too. Yep. Maybe- It's not just a group of scientists and engineers who say we need to slow down all the advances with AI. Maybe it is going to be something like this, that the economics and the business model with a lawsuit attached to it is what's actually going to slow down the process. I don't think it's going to be a government-led initiative, which that also has been discussed, like we need to put regulation in place. I think it is going to get down to things like this, where it's the New York Times, which is a for-profit business that feels it's been harmed because of what another for-profit business has done. And as you said, then it gets solved in the courts, uh, either through a settlement or there's, uh, th- it goes to trial. And I think that is probably a good thing versus the other outcome, which is waiting for government to do something.
1: It's, it's going to be an interesting case to watch for sure. All right. Thank you, John. Appreciate you jumping in and having this conversation. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, my conversation with Oren Etzioni, a longtime computer science professor at the University of Washington, former CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, about the past year in AI and what's coming up next.
0: Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's
1: competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. One of our recurring guests over the years on the topic of AI has been computer scientist and entrepreneur Oren Etzioni. I caught up with him again just before the holidays, so I wasn't able to ask him about the New York Times lawsuit, which hadn't happened yet, but it was a great opportunity to get him to reflect on the past year in AI and where we're headed next. I started by asking him to catch us up on what he's been up to lately.
0: I'm still Orin Etzioni, and my title is Professor Emeritus at the University of Washington. Still proud to be Technical Director, at the AI2 incubator, venture partner at Moderna Venture Group, and also on the board of AI2. So I am proud to wear many hats, but more than anything, I am a student of AI. Oren,
1: you've been a student of AI for decades, going back to Harvard in the 1980s. Am I getting this right? Am I remembering this right?
0: You are. I like to say that I've been studying. Big data ever since it was just little data.
1: (laughs) And we've been talking to you, I've been talking to you about artificial intelligence for many years now. And I was going back to some of the podcasts that we recorded in 2015 and 2016. And it's remarkable how many of the same themes came up at the time that are so much on the minds of the general public. Now, you were talking about things then that people now are coming to the realization of. They're, they're recognizing as core topics for the future of humanity, safety, jobs, and the role of AI as a companion. How would you describe, with the breadth of that history that you have, what we've seen in the field of AI over the past year?
0: I think that over the past year, it's really been a wake-up call. So a lot of us, I like to say, our our overnight success has been decades in the making, and a lot of us have been aware of the potential of AI for a while. I don't think any of us anticipated just how quickly and how dramatically it would come in the shape of ChatGPT and so on, but we all knew that it was coming. Now, it turns out that the rest of the world literally is catching up. That includes the politicians, that includes the kids, that includes the teachers. It's now changing every aspect of society.
1: Is the speed the thing that has surprised you most or have there been elements of the dawning of this new age of generative AI that contrast with what you might have predicted when we talked seven, eight, nine years ago?
0: The biggest surprise is that AI used to be narrow. If you wanted to build a go player, uh, a chess player, uh, a system to detect objects, whatever narrow task you had in mind, I had an uh, airfare fluctuation predictor, whatever it is, you could... Faircast. Faircast, right? Back in the day, thanks for remembering. You could build a model train it up on a bunch of data, and it would do surprisingly well. Radiology images, you name it. But these were all narrow, targeted systems. And when you want went from one application to the other, you had to redo it all from scratch. What really surprised us is the emergence of general tools, right? So GPT is general. You can talk to it about anything. It's almost the love child of a search engine like Google, which you can talk to about anything, with the somewhat limited but very real intelligence of AI systems.
1: I listened to a podcast interview that you did on a podcast called Artificial Intelligence and You, and you used a fascinating analogy. I think it's an analogy, not a metaphor. And that is comparing AI and humanity and human thought to a Boeing 747 and a bird in flight. Can you explain that to me? Because it was something you said that went by really fast on that episode, and I don't know that you ever fully explained what you meant.
0: Sure. So when we think about intelligence, our natural reference point is humans. That's really the only intelligence system that we know. And there's a very real possibility that the intelligence that's emerging from machines is going to be very, very different. And the analogy I like to give, and it's not mine, it's an old analogy in the field, is to say that human intelligence is to artificial intelligence the way the flight of birds is to the flight of a Boeing 747 jet. So they're governed by the same principles, right? We have aerodynamics, we have the Bernoulli principle. But the actual mechanisms, can be very, very different. And they can each have their own strengths and weaknesses. So still for the foreseeable future, what I see as emerging is AI as a tool. And I believe that in 2015, I believe that today. AI is a co-pilot. It's a tool that we as humans use to accomplish hopefully our best, not our worst.
1: If you were to carry that analogy or metaphor through. I need to ask ChatGPT whether that's an analogy or metaphor. My high school English teacher would be very disappointed in me. At any rate, if you were to carry that through, are we closer to the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk when you look at AI or are we Bill Boeing in the early 20th century? Where are we right now in the development of AI if you were to carry that comparison forward?
0: I would say that we have passed the Wright brothers. So, they were struggling to figure out what could take flight. And there were a lot of mistakes along the way, a lot of uh, wrong turns. We now have algorithms that can do amazing things, from summarizing documents to writing software to discovering new drugs. And so I would say that we're far from the end of the story. We don't have the modern jet engine. We don't have the modern efficient jet engine, but I think we are seeing the Wright brothers in the rear view mirror.
1: You've been looking at this field for decades, as we said. What's it been like for you to have it come out in such a tangible way over the past year? Has it changed what you do in your daily life at this point?
0: It really has. What I do in my daily life is, and I encourage everybody to do, is spend a lot more time with GPT or other models. And I continue to be amazed by what they do, by the mistakes they make, by how I can fix those with better uh, prompting and with the possibilities there. So I encourage everyone, if you're not spending, say, I don't know, at least 10 minutes a day with your favorite AI system, you're not keeping up.
1: I've been through this evolution of my own over the past 18 months. It was in mid to late 2022, when Microsoft first started to offer the OpenAI API through Azure. And I'm not a developer, but I got in touch with Microsoft because I, from listening to them, saw the potential to apply this to my own field, to journalism. And so I started talking with some of their engineers in part to do an experiential story about what you could do with AI at that point. And my goal was to be able to take notes, background material, a recording of an interview such as this, feed it into the system and have the system generate something close to a finished product. And what I've realized over the past 18 months is we're not anywhere close to that, at least in terms of getting a draft that would be 80, 90, 95% there. However, for me, the more transformative impact has been components, steps along the way, realizing that I can ask and interrogate a transcript of the interview with the questions that I want to know from the hour-long interview that I might not remember exactly what every person said that I talked to and get back answers that make my work life far more efficient, that eliminate the drudgery. And Microsoft uses that phrase co-pilot a lot, and you just used it as well. But it seems like that's far more where we are today.
0: Yes. In fact, Copilot might not even be the the right phrase. Maybe an assistant. And an assistant is often only as good as the tasks that you're able to give it. Some things uh, we cannot delegate, some things we delegate badly and they're ill, Uh, specified. So with great respect, uh, I don't expect AI to do your job uh, as a journalist, but I think it could write a paragraph for you. My favorite example is when you need to move things into a certain word limit. You say, gosh, this is too verbose. Can I make this more concise? or can I get rid of some extraneous details? That sort of thing as a writer, I often find uh, that we have to do either an academic paper or otherwise, and it is absolutely brilliant at that. So again, find the task that you enjoy doing the least, not the ideation, the interviewing, the connecting with people, the framing of the story. It's not that good at that, but the part that you enjoy doing the least And it'll be miraculously good at doing that. Let me just give one quick example. There's a company that I have nothing to do with. It's in the Bay Area. It's called Rad AI. It's a company for radiologists. And when I first learned about it, I said, oh, you know, uh, computers are so good at reading radiological images. Surely what Rad AI does is read radiological images. Turns out that's not the case at all. Rad AI radiologists like to read the images. This is what they do. What they hate is typing up the notes about it right? Dictation and so on. So what what AI does is it helps them write up their notes about what they saw in the images. So I think we have here the potential, just like you said, of finding the drudgery, finding the things you don't like to do, and having AI give you a big help with those.
1: And not to continue with my own experiences, but I think it does help to talk about this in real tangible terms, just like you're doing right there. The thing I've been doing lately is I am a very amateur guitar player who took lessons as a kid and just started playing again as an adult a few years ago and the transposition transposing from one key to another i kind of get the concept i know how to use a capo on a guitar to change the key that you're in and i know how to read basic music but just this morning i was sitting in there in ChatGPT, and i said This is the number of flats in the key. What key is that? Remind me of that. Tell me what the major chords are, the number, the chords assigned to this key. And I was able to just accelerate my own understanding of this piece of music that I was trying to learn. And so to your point earlier, it's so general. It's so broad. This is the same technology that's also serving as a coding companion for somebody trying to learn Python. It's it's crazy how broad it is.
0: That's been the big surprise of 2023. And I would say that what happens next in 2024 is uh, what somebody once called the toothbrush test. So how many times a day do you use the technology? For most of us, toothbrush is two to three times. So I think that in 2024, the toothbrush test for AI is going to explode. We're going to find that we're using it 2, 3, 10, 20 times a day. And I'm not even talking about its implicit use where it's you're doing speech recognition in your car or the Google search engine is using it to re-rank things. I'm talking about us interacting with AI system with our music and our art or in our job I think it's going to be easily 10 times a day on average. Okay. These are the good parts. (laughs) There's lots of good
1: things and it's easy to get wrapped up in them. I know that you're also paying attention to some of the risks. So I want to talk about that when we come back, we are catching up with Oren Etzioni about artificial intelligence, and we'll be right back.
2: This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are
1: sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm talking with artificial intelligence expert, long-time leader in the field, Oren Etzioni. We are sitting here in the offices of the AI2 Semantic Scholar Project across the street from the AI2 Incubator. These are all projects that Oren worked on with his team for many years when he was the CEO of AI2, and he's still involved in many ways with the organization, even as it's led by Ali Farhadi, who has taken over in the role that you once had. So I know this is a place that's near and dear to your heart,
0: Oren. Very much so, and Ali is a dear friend, and uh, a wonderful leader in what's a tumultuous time for the field. Over the past
1: year, as you've been figuring out what you're going to do next, in addition to some of your ongoing projects, I know part of what you're focusing on is some of the risks of misinformation and disinformation in the field. I know that you've got some things coming up on that front that you might not be able to talk about yet, but I am curious. What are your concerns as you look at this new era of AI and where the risks are?
0: So earlier this summer, I had the opportunity to meet in a small group with President Biden, and we talked about the huge positive potential for AI, and we've talked about this earlier in this podcast. But the biggest risk that emerged for me and in the conversation is the impact on the upcoming election. I'm very worried that misinformation, we've already seen it in previous elections, but it's gotten cheaper, easier to do with generative AI. And I am terrified of its effect on the November election that's coming up really around the corner, on the primaries, on the election itself, uh, the potential for distrust, and so on. And I am determined to do something about it, to help figure out how generative AI doesn't become the Achilles heel of democracy.
1: It seems like transparency is the key, the ability to understand at a core level whether something is created by AI or manipulated and created out of fiction or as fiction. But that's both humans and machines. Are there technological solutions here? What can you tell us about where you see the potential solutions?
0: Well, what's clear is with any such complex problem, there is no silver bullet. It's not like there's a magical regulation, if we pass it, we'll be done. Or there's a magical technology, if we just do that. People talk, for example, about uh, watermarking, right? making sure that every piece of content that is authentically generated by some source is marked that way. That's not good enough. It's easy to defeat that. So I think we need several pieces to act in concert. I think we need strong regulations. I think we need education. People need to understand how to critically evaluate what they're hearing, particularly over social media. Is it genuine? Is it authentic? Has it been manipulated in some way? Those are societal things. In addition, we do need watermarking, authentication, uh, provenance, so we know where things come from. And in addition to all that, we need the ability to detect. So when I see a video, when I hear an audio, I have to be able to ask, was this altered? Was this manipulated? Was this automatically generated by AI? With those pieces, I think we have hope to have a robust system. Without any of them, I think we are seeing some major risks.
1: Did you follow the Sports Illustrated up where Sports Illustrated was determined to have been putting out AI-generated content without apparently informing readers that it was AI-generated?
0: Todd, I had nothing to do. With that. <laughs> no, just kidding. Yes, I did I did read about that, and uh, it seemed like uh, what you might call an unforced error.
1: Yeah, uh, apropos, given the topic of their coverage, yes. So, to me, that really raised the issue of responsibility. The technology is there, and Humans, it seems, have some sort of responsibility to maintain their ethics, but the AI has enabled this whole new era of potential
0: misuse. I think that the reality is that there will be misuse, as there's been of every powerful technology. So what I said years ago, and I'd like to reiterate, is AI is a tool and the choice is ours.
1: Mm, interesting. So, when you think about the election coming up and just in general, the potential for fake content, for artificially generated content to influence someone's view of the world, do you feel like there is a solution to it? Are we going to be able to reach a point where this is not a concern for people anymore, or is it simply minimizing the risk?
0: I don't see a simple solution. I hope over time we'll get there. Let me give an analogy uh, another complex problem years ago we were really worried about spam email spam right there was just it seemed like we were inundated with millions, billions of messages to the point where they were starting to swamp uh, real content and over time, through a variety of technological solutions, also corporate action, also legal action uh, we've been able to dampen that down there's still Uh, Spam, But it's not nearly as bad. It hasn't swamped real content. I think the same thing is true here. There's not going to be a simple solution. But with work, we will make things better. I'm really worried, though, about this election, because it's arguably one of the most important, if not the most important in American history. We've seen time again all over the world and in our democracy we're quite polarized and elections are decided by narrow margins, by small numbers of votes. So I'm worried that enough distrust is sown, enough confusion, enough misinformation that it'll sway the results of this election in an inappropriate way. And I'm determined over the next 12 months or less to do something about it.
1: And I know you'll have more to say about that sometime soon. To be continued. Got it. One project that's been in the works and here at AI2 for quite a while is real toxicity prompts. And it was interesting, we just saw Google a couple weeks ago with the release of their new Gemini model. They used real toxicity prompts from AI2 to test whether Gemini was suitable to put out into the world. That was one of the tools that they used. Are there more opportunities for projects like this to help keep these AI models within the bounds of good behavior, as it were?
0: Absolutely. So I'm very proud of the folks at AI2, which is a nonprofit research center to remind the audience, identifying things that they can do to help have a healthy ecosystem, right? As we all know from the open AI uh, drama that's unfolded recently. There's a very strong profit motive with each of these corporate models. And there's room, more than room, it's essential to have people thinking about this from a more neutral point of view. And this AI2 project is a great example. So what I expect to see more of from AI2 is more openness, more transparency, and more tools that help make sure that Large language models, these types of foundation models are doing good things rather than bad ones.
1: When you look at that balance of power and the profit motives, but also the resources that the companies with the profit motives have already because of their entrenched positions, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and obviously there's other commercial interests out there, but certainly because of their positions in the cloud, their access to GPUs, to their own chips increasingly. It feels like there's a risk for a consolidation of power among these big tech companies. How do you think about that? And is there the potential for an alternative where the access to the power of AI is more democratized?
0: The consolidation of power in AI is a huge risk, and we've seen some of that with the top corporations. The countervailing forces are number one, open source models, and so a great analogy here is what we've seen in operating systems. We had Windows, which billions and billions of dollars went into, but we also had Linux that the open source movement championed. So I hope that we will have a Linux of language models, a Linux uh, of AI, and I also think that the government has room to play, has a role to play in making resources available. I served on the National AI Research Resource Advisory Board, and we strongly advised the administration that, of course, has a lot of competing priorities and a lot of voices requesting funding from it, but requested to ensure that there is funding for universities, for nonprofits, so that they're not shut out of the game of AI. And it's not a game. They're not shut out of doing... Cutting edge AI research.
1: What's it going to take to get there? Is it more funding for the NSF? Is it? Are there specific things that you would suggest the government do, or that open source project leaders do to, to make this possible?
0: Well, th- there are specific things. So I think uh, more funding for the National Science Foundation is a is a great idea. I think associating. Funding for computation, cloud computation, with research grants is really important. We typically fund grad students, fund travel to conferences, but we don't necessarily fund the amount of computation that's required. I think also we need to be very careful with regulation. There are a lot of voices calling for regulation, and regulation has a role to play, but there's also such a thing as regulatory capture. And often we've seen that regulations tend to favor incumbents, and incumbents sometimes call for regulation once they've established a preferred position. So we have to be very careful not to overburden the open source ecosystem with inappropriate regulation, and it's a very tricky balance. Or, and you are in a
1: fascinating position based on your background because you have started numerous companies, started, built, and sold, and exited numerous companies over the years. Is it easier or harder right now to build a startup based on the AI landscape that we're seeing today? Because on the one hand, you have access to more resources, but on the other hand, you really don't because of the scarcity of processing power. I'd be really curious what your thoughts are.
0: I think some people have the perception that right now it's hard to launch a successful startup because of the huge amount of compute power required for these massive models. I think nothing could be further from the truth. We're at a moment of disruption, and disruption creates a lot of opportunities. And let me just mention a few quick examples. A company that came out of the i2 incubator hasn't been announced yet i hope i'm not stealing their thunder they're called chip stack. And they're starting to think about what these types of models can do in the world of chips. And I'll keep that very vague. There's a company called Udly that you're familiar with or written about that's using generative AI to help people prepare for interviews, to help people get jobs, to help people become better public speakers. There's many applications in biology from the Institute of Protein Design out of the Fred Hotch and so on, where It's a more targeted data set. It's not all the text on the internet. It's biological data. And we have companies like OctoML that are working to make inference, to make these processes a lot more efficient because they're expensive. They're too expensive. So I have seen tremendous activity, a lot of vibrant startup formation. And, of course, the startups have to have a strategy not to be steamrolled by, say, uh, an open AI. But that was always true. right? When you did a search, you had to not be steamrolled by Google. When you did an app, you had to not be steamrolled by by Apple or Android when you did a game. So startups are always playing a, a game of David versus Goliath. But David often wins. And the best demonstration of that is, look at all these massive companies around us. Amazon, Microsoft, Google, OpenAI, they were all startups back in the day.
1: I'm sure you get asked all the time about what students should study if they're just, say, going through high school right now, thinking about a career in computer science. It's changed so fast over the past year, it seems like it would be hard to do long term career planning. Certainly, Focusing on one language or one model or one form of technology. What is your advice to computer science students and aspiring computer science students when they ask about getting into this field?
0: I often tell them a few things. One, study the fundamentals. So math, statistics, the basic ideas of computer science, those have not changed. Those are the building blocks. On which we're building the latest technology. In fact, next quarter at the University of Washington, I'm teaching a course entitled Big Ideas in AI, where I'm asking, okay, we, we have this technology that we all know and love or know and dread depending on who you are, but it didn't come into fruition overnight. It's built on some key ideas from the '50s, '60s, '70s, uh, etc. What are those ideas? So the first thing I say is make sure you master the fundamentals. The second thing I want to say is follow your passion. So much people are worried or trying to game the future. Well, I should study this because I could get that job, and I should do this. You're young. The world is changing quickly. Follow your passion. Enjoy. The educational process, enjoy learning what what you need to do, and these things will take care of themselves.
1: What are you going to be watching most closely over the next year in 2024 in terms of where artificial intelligence goes from here?
0: I'm going to be watching the regulatory landscape because with President Biden's executive order and other things that are afoot, I think there are going to be some major steps there, and it's important to get them right. I'm also going to be watching the early reports about GPT-5. There's some disagreement about how much better it's going to be compared with GPT-4. And the truth is still out there. The one other thing I want to highlight is sometimes people overlook just how important Seattle and the Seattle area and the Seattle ecosystem is in this whole story from inventions at AI2 and at Google Fremont that made it into the latest technology to startups that we've done that are contributing to it to, of course, Microsoft and Amazon, some of the major uh, cloud players and so on. So I think that the future of technology and AI technology in Seattle with the University of Washington, and all the institutes that we have here is incredibly bright. And of course, we can count on GeekWire to be chronicling it every step of the way.
1: Warren, we should just package that up into a nice 30-second ad. Thank you very much. It's funny, I recently watched a really good documentary on Barry Sanders, the former running back for the Detroit Lions, on Amazon Prime Video, no less. And one of the things that I really liked about him as a player, which I didn't realize or recognize at the time, was whenever he scored on this spectacular touchdown run, he just handed the ball to the official. He didn't spike it. He had been there before. He was going to be there again. And in some ways, as you're talking about Seattle, it kind of reminds me of that. We don't spike the ball here. And when I say we, I mean the technologists in this city don't spike the ball here. They are very businesslike about what they do. And sometimes, as a result, their work doesn't always get recognized on the national or global scale. But then again, Jim Cramer from CNBC was just here, and he called Seattle the world center of AI. So maybe the message is getting out.
0: My way of saying that is, in Seattle, we're less about drinking the Kool-Aid and more about drinking
1: coffee. <laughs> or thank you very much for taking the time. My pleasure, Todd. Computer scientist and entrepreneur Oren Etzioni is Professor Emeritus at the University of Washington, board member at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, technical director at the AI2 Incubator, and venture partner at Madrona Venture Group. This episode was edited by Kurt Milton. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Happy New Year,
0: and thanks for listening to the GeekWire podcast.